Chapter 18 of With Cortez in Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. With Cortez in Mexico by George Alfred Henty. Chapter 18 The Rising in Mexico. The appearance of the vast crowd that surrounded the palace differed much from that which they had presented on the previous day when the mexicans had fought in their usual garments or in their padded cuirasses today they had laid aside all their garments save their loincloths having found by experience that their cotton armor was absolutely useless against the missiles of the spaniards the chiefs were now conspicuous as they moved to and fro among the dark masses by their gay dresses and the metal breastplates worn over the bright featherwork they wore helmets made to resemble the heads of ferocious wild beasts crested with bristly hair or surmounted by bright feather plumes some wore only a red fillet around their head having tufts of cotton hanging from it each tuft denoting some victory in which they had taken part and their own rank in the army noble and citizen priest and soldier had all united in the common cause the assault was about to commence when the spaniards artillery and musketry poured death into the crowded ranks the gates were at once thrown open and cortez at the head of his cavalry dashed out followed by the infantry and the tlascalan allies confused by the slaughter made by the firearms the Aztecs could offer no resistance to the onslaught. The cavalry trampled them underfoot and mowed them down with sword and lance. The Spanish foot and Tlascalans followed close behind, carried on the work of destruction, and it seemed to the Spaniards that the fight was already over when the Aztecs fled before them. The moment of retreat, however, ceased the moment the Mexicans reached the barricades which they had thrown up across the streets and forming behind these they made a gallant stand while those upon the housetops poured showers of arrows darts and great stones down upon the advancing spaniards in vain the spanish artillery were brought up and their fire swept away the barricades there were still others behind and at each the desperate fight was renewed Coming down the side streets, the Aztecs fell upon the Spanish flanks, and clouds of missiles were shot from the boats, which crowded the canals everywhere intersecting the streets. Cortez and his cavaliers continued to make desperate charges through the Aztecs, who, although unable to withstand the weight and impetus of the horses, closed round them, striving to throw the riders from their backs and to stab the horses themselves throwing away their lives without hesitation on the chance of getting one blow at the spaniards the moment the horsemen drew back the aztecs followed them and although their loss was immense the ranks were instantly filled up again while the spaniards could ill spare the comparatively small number who fell on their side at last after hours of carnage the spaniards exhausted by their exertions and having eaten nothing since the night before, fell back to the palace. Diaz, one of the historians of the events, 
who was present at the combat, expressed the astonishment felt by the Spaniards at the desperation with which the despised Mexicans had fought. The Mexicans, he said, fought with such ferocity that if we had had the assistance of ten thousand hectares and as many Orlandos, we should have made no impression on them. There were several of our troops who had served in the Italian wars, but neither there nor in the battles with the Turk have they ever seen anything like the desperation shown by these Indians. As the Spaniards fell back, the Aztecs followed them, pouring in volleys of stones and arrows, and as soon as they had entered the palace, encamped around it, showing that their spirit was wholly unbroken. Although, as it was contrary to their custom to fight at night, they did not renew the attack, they shouted insulting threats as to the Spaniards' fate when they should fall into their hands, and were evidently well satisfied with the events of the day, and looked for victory on the morrow. Cortez had received a severe wound in the hand during the fight, and he and his companions felt how grievously they had mistaken the character of the Aztecs. They had sallied out that morning, confident in their power to crush out the insurrection. They returned, feeling that their situation was well-nigh desperate, and that henceforth they must fight not for dominion but for life. As soon as day broke, the fight was renewed, but this time it was the Aztecs and not the Spaniards who began it. There was no idea of a fresh sortie. All that the garrison could hope was to defend their position. So furiously did the natives attack that, for a time, they forced their way into the entrenchments. But the Spaniards, whose turn it was to fight with the bravery of despair, fell upon them with such fury that none of those who had gained an entry returned. Cortez now sent to Montezuma to request him to interpose, as he had done before, between them and his people. The emperor refused to interfere. He had viewed the desperate fighting of the last two days with bitter humiliation. He had seen his brother, Cuatlahua, leading on his troops with the greatest gallantry, while he himself, thanks to his own conduct, was a helpless prisoner. He mourned over the terrible losses his people were suffering, and the fact that his kindness to the Spaniards had brought upon him nothing but ill-treatment and insult at their hands had earned him the contempt of his people, and had involved his country in misfortune and ruin, cut him to the heart. "'What have I to do with Malinzin?' he said coldly. "'I desire only to die.' Then, still further urged, he added, "'It is useless. They will neither believe me.' nor the false words and promises of Melinzin, you will never leave these walls alive. On being assured that the Spaniards would willingly depart and leave the country, if their assailants would open a way to them, he at last consented to address the people. Clothing himself in his richest robes of state, he ascended the central turret of the palace, surrounded by a guard of Spaniards and accompanied by several Aztec nobles. When he was seen, the din of war ceased as if by magic. A dead silence fell upon the multitude, and they knelt and prostrated themselves before the sovereign 
they had so long held in the deepest reverence. But when he addressed them, assuring them that he was a guest and not a prisoner of the Spaniards, and ordered them to lay down their arms and to allow the Spaniards to march to the coast, indignation at his cowardice overpowered their feelings of reverence and respect. They burst into taunts and execrations, and a moment later a storm of missiles were hurled at the man who had betrayed them. The Spanish guards, seeing the effect his presence had produced, had stood aside to enable him the better to be seen, and before they could close around him and cover him with their shields, three missiles struck him, one a stone hurled from a sling, smiting him on the head with such violence that he fell insensible. When the Aztecs saw him fall, their brief outburst of indignation was succeeded by one of sorrow, and with a cry of grief the whole multitude dispersed, and in a minute or two the crowded square was wholly deserted. Montezuma was carried to his chamber. When he recovered sensibility, he refused absolutely to allow his wounds to be dressed, and tore off the bandages. Not a word passed his lips. He sat in an attitude of the deepest dejection. His own people despised him, and had raised their hands against him. He had drunk deeply of the cup of humiliation at the hands of the Spaniards, but this last drop filled it to overflowing. There was nothing for him but to die. The Spanish leaders tried, but in vain, to persuade him to submit to surgical treatment. He paid no attention to their words, and they were soon called away by fresh danger from without. The Aztecs had speedily recovered from their emotion at seeing the fall of the emperor, and a body of five or six hundred of them, including many nobles and military leaders of high rank, had taken possession of the great temple, and now from its summit, a hundred and fifty feet high, opened a rain of missiles upon the palace. The Spaniards could not effectually return their fire, for the Aztecs were sheltered by the sanctuaries on the summit of the pyramids. It was absolutely necessary for the safety of the defenders to dislodge them from this position, and Cortes ordered his chamberlain, Don Escobar, with a hundred men, to storm the Teocalli and set fire to the sanctuaries. But the little force were three times repulsed, and forced to fall back with considerable loss. Cortes then, though suffering much from the wound in his left hand, determined himself to lead the assault. As he was incapable of holding his shield, he had it strapped to his left arm, and with three hundred picked men and some thousands of the Tlascalans sallied out from the palace and attacked the Aztecs in the temple at the foot of the pyramid. The Spaniards made their way through these without much difficulty, and then commenced the ascent of the pyramid. This offered great facilities for defense. There were five terraces connected by steps, so placed that those mounting the pyramid had to make the whole circuit on each terrace before reaching the steps leading to the next. It was thus necessary to pass round the pyramid four times, or nearly two miles, exposed to the missiles of those upon the summit. Leaving a strong body of Spaniards and Tlascalans at the bottom to prevent the natives ascending and attacking him in the rear, 
Cortez led the way up the staircase, followed closely by his principal officers. In spite of the heavy stones and beams of wood which, with a storm of arrows, were hurled down upon them, the Spaniards won their way from terrace to terrace, supported by the fire of their musketeers below, until at last they reached the great platform on the summit of the pyramid. Here a terrible conflict commenced, the Aztecs brought to bay, and fighting not only for life, but in the presence of their country's gods, displayed a valor at least equal to that of the Spaniards. Numbers were slightly in their favor, but this was far more than counterbalanced by the superior arms of the Spaniards, and by the armor which rendered them almost invulnerable to the comparatively puny weapons of the Mexicans. And yet, for three hours the fight continued. At the end of that time, all the Mexicans, save two or three priests, were killed, while forty-five of the Spaniards had fallen, and almost all the others were wounded. While this fight had been raging, the combat had ceased elsewhere, the combatants on both sides being absorbed in the struggle taking place at the summit of the temple. They could not, of course, judge how it was going, though they caught sight of the combatants as they neared the edges of the platform, which was unprotected by wall or fence, and many in the course of the struggle fell or were hurled over it. The moment the struggle was over, the Spaniards rushed with exulting shouts into the sanctuary of the Mexican god, reeking with the blood of fresh-killed victims, cast the image from its pedestal, rolled it across the platform to the head of the steps, and then, amid shouts that were echoed by their comrades below, sent it bounding down, while a cry of anguish and dismay rose from the Mexicans. The image dethroned, fire was applied to the sanctuary, and the smoke and flames rising up must have told countless thousands watching the capital from the housetops of the neighboring cities that the white men had triumphed over the gods of Mexico, and that, as at Cholula, so at the capital, these had proved impotent to protect their votaries from the dread invaders. So dismayed were the Mexicans at the misfortune that they offered no resistance to the return of the Spaniards from the temple, and retired to their houses without further fighting. At night the Spaniards sallied out again, relying upon the habit of the Mexicans to abstain from fighting at night, and burnt several hundred houses. Believing that the spirit of the Mexicans would be broken now, Cortez, on the following morning, mounted the turret from which Montezuma had addressed them. Malincha was by his side, and when he held up his hands to show that he wished to address them, a silence fell upon the multitude, and Malincha's voice was heard plainly by them as she translated the words of Cortez. He told them they must now feel that they could not struggle against the Spaniards. Their gods had been cast down, their dwellings burnt, their warriors slaughtered, and all this they had brought on themselves by their rebellion. Yet, if they would lay down their arms and return to the obedience of their sovereign, he would stay his hand. If not, he would make their city a heap of ruins, and leave not a soul alive to mourn over it. But Cortez learned at once 
that the spirit he had roused in the Mexicans was in no way lowered by their reverses. One of the great chiefs answered him that it was true he had hurled down their gods and massacred their countrymen, but they were content to lose a thousand lives for every one that they took. Our streets, he said, are still thronged with warriors. Our numbers are scarcely diminished. Yours are lessening every day. You are dying with hunger and sickness. Your provisions and water are failing. You must soon fall into our hands. The bridges are broken down, and you cannot escape. There will be too few of you left to satisfy the vengeance of the gods. When he had finished, a shower of arrows showed that hostilities had recommenced. The garrison were now completely disheartened. Of what use the tremendous exertions they had made, and the lives that had been lost. They were still, as they had been on the first day of their arrival, hemmed in in their fortress, surrounded by foes thirsting for their blood. Great numbers were wounded, more or less severely. Their provisions were well-nigh gone. The enemy were bolder than ever. They had been promised wealth and honor. They were starving, and death stared them in the face. They loudly exclaimed that they had been deceived and betrayed. But the men who had served all along with Cortez stood firm. They had still every confidence in their leader. It was not his fault that they had been brought to this pass, but by the misconduct of others during his absence. At any rate, as they pointed out to their comrades, the only chance of escape was unity and obedience. Cortez himself was, as always in a moment of great danger, calm and collected. The thought of having to leave the city, to abandon all the treasures they had taken, was even more painful to him than to the soldiers. It was not the loss of his own share of the booty, but of that of the emperor that he regretted, for he felt that this, together with the downfall of all his plans, and the loss of the kingdom he had already counted won, would bring upon him the displeasure of his emperor, would give strength to his enemies at court, and would probably ensure his being recalled in disgrace. Nevertheless, he saw that retreat was necessary, for the position could not be maintained. Every day the defenses became weaker, the men more exhausted by fighting, and there would soon be no longer a morsel of bread to serve out to them. A retreat must therefore be made." The question was which route should be chosen. In any case, one of the narrow dikes connecting the island city with the shore must be traversed, and on these causeways the Spaniards would fight under great disadvantage. Finally, he settled upon that leading to Tlacopan, which was much the shortest, being only two miles in length. For some days a large party of men had been at work constructing movable towers, similar to those used centuries before, in sieges. They moved on rollers and were to be dragged by the Tlascalan allies. From their summits, the soldiers could shoot down upon the housetops from which they had been hitherto so annoyed. The towers were also provided with bridges, which could be let down onto the roofs, and so enable the soldiers to meet their opponents hand to hand. When the structures were completed, the Spaniards again took the offensive. The gates were opened, 
and the three towers, dragged by the Tlascalans, moved out. The Mexicans, astonished at the sight of these machines, from whose summits a heavy fire of musketry were kept up, fell back for a time. The towers were moved up close to the terraces, and the soldiers, after partly clearing them by their fire, lowered the light bridges and, crossing, engaged in a hand-to-hand -hand fight with the Mexicans, and drove them from their positions. But from the lofty houses of the nobles, the Mexicans still maintained their resistance. The towers were not high enough to overlook these, and, as they came up, beams of wood and huge stones were cast down upon them, striking with such force that it soon became evident to those within them that the towers would not hold together. They were dragged on, however, till a canal crossed the road. The bridge had been removed, and both the cavalry and the towers were brought to a standstill. The latter were abandoned, and Cortes ordered his troops to make a road forward by filling up the canals with stones and wood from the houses near. While engaged in this operation, they were exposed to an incessant fire from every point of advantage in the neighborhood and from the opposite bank of the canal. The work was, however, completed, and the cavalry, crossing, drove the Mexicans headlong down the great street till they came to another canal, where the same work had again to be performed. No less than seven canals crossed the street, and it took two days of constant fighting before the last of these was crossed, and the whole street in their hands. Just as the last canal had been captured, Cortez, who was ever at the head of his men, received news that the Mexicans desired to open a parley with him, and that some of their nobles had arrived at the palace for that purpose. Delighted at the news, he rode back with his officers. The Mexicans requested that the two priests, who had been captured in the great temple, should be released, and should be the bearers of his terms, and discuss the negotiations. Cortez at once consented, and the priests left with the envoys, with instructions that, if the Mexicans would lay down their arms, the past should be forgiven. The mission was, however, a mere trick. The Mexicans were most anxious to rescue the priests, one of whom was the high priest, and therefore most sacred in their eyes. Cortez had scarcely sat down to a meal, which he sorely needed after his fatigues, when the news was brought that the Mexicans had again attacked with greater fury than ever, and at three points had driven off the detachments placed to guard the newly made causeways across the canal. Cortez and his companions leaped on their horses and, riding down the great street, again cleared it. But no sooner had he reached the other end than the Mexicans, gathering in the lanes and side streets, poured in again, and overpowered the guard at one of the principal canals. Swarms of warriors poured in on all sides, and a storm of arrows and other missiles was poured down upon Cortez and his cavaliers. The confusion at the broken bridge was tremendous. The cavalry and infantry struggled fiercely with the crowds of foes, while others strove again to repair the bridge which the Mexicans had again torn down. Cortez himself performed prodigies of valor in covering the retreat of his men, dashing alone into the midst of the ranks of the enemy, shouting his battle-cry, 
and dealing death with every blow of his sword. So far did he penetrate among his foes that report spread that he was killed, and when at last he fought his way back and leaped his horse over a chasm still remaining in the bridge, his escape was regarded by his troops as absolutely miraculous, and it was said that he had been saved by the national apostle, St. James, and the Virgin Mary, who had fought by his side. At night the Mexicans, as usual, drew off, and the Spaniards, dispirited and exhausted, fell back to their citadel. That evening Montezuma died. He had refused all nourishment, as well as medicine, from the time he had been wounded. Father Almedo did his best to persuade him to embrace the Christian faith, but Montezuma stoutly refused. Just before he died, he sent for Cortez and recommended his three daughters by his principal wife to his charge, begging him to interest his master, the emperor, on their behalf, and to see that they had some portion of their rightful inheritance. "'Your lord will do this,' he said, "'if only for the friendly offices I have rendered the Spaniards, and for the love that I have shown them, though it has brought me to this condition.' but for this I bear them no ill will. This Cortez promised and, after the conquest, took the three ladies into his own family. They were instructed in the doctrines of Christianity and were married to Spanish nobles and handsome dowries assigned to them. The news of Montezuma's death was received with real grief by the Spaniards, to whom his generosity and constant kindness and gentleness of manner had endeared him. There can be but little doubt that, in spite of the accusations against him of meditating treachery, Montezuma was, from the time they entered the capital, sincere in his good will towards the Spaniards. He was devoted to his own gods, and believed implicitly in the prophecy that Quetzalcoatl, or his descendants, would return to rule Mexico. Their superior science and attainments confirmed him in his belief that the Spaniards fulfilled the prophecy, and he was willing to resign alike his power, his possessions, and himself to their hands. In his early days he had shown great personal bravery, and the cowardice he displayed throughout the whole of his dealing with the Spaniards was the result of superstition, and not that of personal fear. Cortes paid all respect to the remains of his late unhappy captive, the body was arrayed in royal robes and laid on a bier, and was carried by the nobles, who had remained faithful to him during his imprisonment, into the city. It is uncertain where Montezuma was finally buried. With the death of the emperor, the last hope of the Spaniards of making terms with their assailants vanished. There was nothing now but retreat. After some debate, it was settled that this should take place at night when they would find the Mexicans unprepared. The difficulties of passage would be greater, but these would, it was thought, be counterbalanced by the advantage of being able to make at least a portion of their retreat unobserved. It was determined that no time should be lost. The Mexicans would doubtless be mourning over the body of Montezuma and would be unprepared for such prompt action on the part of the Spaniards. The first question was the disposal of the treasure. The soldiers had, for the most part, 
converted their share of the gold into chains, which they wore around their necks. But there was a vast amount in bars and ornaments, constituting the one-fifth, which had been set aside for the crown, the one-fifth for Cortes himself, and the shares of his principal officers. One of the strongest horses was laden with the richest portion of the crown treasure, but all the rest was abandoned. The gold lay in great heaps. "'Take what you like of it,' Cortes said to his men, "'but be careful not to overload yourselves. He travels safest in the dark, who travels lightest.' His own veterans took his advice and contented themselves with picking out a few of the most valuable ornaments. But the soldiers of Narvaez could not bring themselves to leave such treasures behind them, and loaded themselves up with as much gold as they could carry. Cortes now arranged the order of march. The van was composed of two hundred Spanish foot and twenty horsemen under the orders of Gonzalo de Sandoval the rear-guard with the main body of the infantry and the greater portion of the guns was commanded by alvarado and velasquez de leon cortez himself led the center which was in charge of the baggage some of the heavy guns and the prisoners among whom were a son and two daughters of montezuma cacama and the other nobles who had been in prison with him the tlascalans were divided among the three corps a portable bridge had been prepared for crossing the canals which intersected the causeway, the intention being that it should be laid across a canal, that the army should pass over it, and that it should then be carried forward to the next gap in the causeway. This was a most faulty arrangement, necessitating frequent and long delays, and entailing almost certain disaster. Had three such portable bridges been constructed, the column could have crossed the causeway with comparatively little risk, and there was no reason why these bridges should not have been constructed, as they could have been carried without difficulty by the Tlascalans. At midnight the troops were in readiness for the march. Mass was performed by Father Almedo, and at one o'clock, on July 1st, 1520, the Spaniards sallied out from the fortress that they had so stoutly defended silence reigned in the city as noiselessly as possible the troops made their way down the broad street expecting every moment to be attacked but even the tramping of the horses and the rumbling of the baggage wagons and artillery did not awake the sleeping mexicans and the head of the column arrived at the head of the causeway before they were discovered then as the advanced guard were preparing to lay the portable bridge across the first opening some aztec sentinels gave the alarm the priests on the summits of the temples heard their cries and at once sounded their horns and the huge war-drum instantly the city awoke and the silence was succeeded by a roar of sound the vanguard had scarcely got upon the causeway when canoes shot out upon the lake and soon a storm of stones and arrows burst upon the column more and more terrible did it become as fresh canoes crowded with the warriors came up many of these pushed up to the causeway itself and the natives landing fell upon the spaniards with fury the latter made no stay fighting their way through their foes they pressed on until they reached the next opening in the causeway 
and there waited for the bridge to come up. But a column many thousands strong, with baggage and artillery, takes a long time to cross a bridge, and the advanced guard had reached the opening long before the rear had passed the bridge, and there stood helpless, exposed to the terrible storm of missiles, until at last the column were all across the bridge. Then forty picked men, who had been specially told off for the task, tried to raise it, so that it might be carried to the front. But the weight of the baggage wagons and artillery had so wedged it into the earth that they were unable to move it. They persevered in their efforts until most of them had fallen. The rest bore the terrible news to the army that the bridge was immovable. A terrible cry of despair arose as the news spread. All hope seemed lost, and, regardless of order or discipline, all pressed forward to endeavor, in some way or other, to cross the obstacle that barred their way. Pressed on by those behind them, Sandoval and his cavaliers dashed into the water. The distance was short, but the horses were weak from hunger, and burdened by their own heavy armor and that of their riders. Some succeeded in swimming across, others sank, while some reached the opposite side only to fall back again as they tried to climb the steep bank. The infantry followed them, throwing away their armor to enable them to swim. Some succeeded, others were pressed down by their comrades, many were killed by the war-clubs or spears of the Mexicans in their canoes, others again, half stunned by the clubs, were dragged into the canoes and carried off to the city to be sacrificed. All along the causeway the fight raged unceasingly, the Aztecs in the boats alongside leaping ashore and grappling with their foes and rolling with them down the causeway into the water while those in the distance kept up their rain of missiles. The opening in the causeway was at last filled, choked up with ammunition wagons and guns, bales of rich goods, chests of gold, and the bodies of men and horses, and over these the Spaniards made their way. Cortez had swum or waded across on his horse, and he rode on until he joined Sandoval and the remains of the advanced guard, who were checked at the third and last opening. The cavaliers set the example to their followers by plunging into the water. The rest followed as best they could. Many were drowned by the weight of the gold they carried. Others got across by clinging to the tails and manes of the horses. Cortez, with Sandoval and other cavaliers, led the retreat until they reached the end of the causeway. The din of battle was now far behind, but those who came up brought the news that the rear guard were so sorely pressed that they would be destroyed unless aid reached them. Cortez and his companions did not hesitate. They dashed along the causeway, again swam the canal, and made their way through the crowd till they reached the rear guard. Morning was breaking now, and it showed the lake covered with canoes filled with warriors. Along the whole length of the causeway, a desperate fight was raging. Cortez found Alvarado on foot. His horse had been killed under him. With a handful of followers, he was still desperately defending the rear against the Mexicans who had poured out from the city in pursuit. The artillery had at first done good service, sweeping the causeway and mowing down hundreds of their assailants. But the Aztecs were careless of life 
and rushed on so furiously that they swept over the guns, killing those who served them, and fell upon the infantry. The charge of Cortez and his companions, for a moment, bore back the foe, but, pressed by those behind, they swept aside resistance, and bore back the Spaniards to the edge of the canal. Cortez and his companions plunged in and swam across. Alvarado stood on the brink, hesitating. Unhorsed and defenseless, he could not make his way across the gap, which was now crowded with the canoes of the enemy. He set his strong lance on the bottom of the canal, and, using it as a leaping-pole, sprang across. The feat was an extraordinary one, for although the width is not given, it was declared, by those who witnessed it, to be impossible for any mortal. It filled friends and foes alike with astonishment, and the spot is, to this day, known by the Mexicans as Alvarado's Leap. The Aztecs followed no farther. They were occupied, now, in securing the enormous wealth the Spaniards had left behind them, and the remnants of the army marched along the causeway unmolested and took possession of the village at its end. Cortez, iron-hearted as he was, sat down and burst into tears as he viewed the broken remnant of his army. He was consoled, however, by finding that many of his most trusted companions had escaped. Sandoval, Alvarado, Oled, Ordaz, and Avia were safe. And so, to his great joy, was Marina. She had, with a daughter of a Tlascalan chief, been placed under the escort of a party of Tlascalan warriors in the van of the column, and had passed unharmed through the dangers of the night. The loss of the Spaniards in their retreat is variously estimated, but the balance of authority among contemporary writers places it at 450 Spaniards and 4,000 Tlascalans. This, with the loss sustained in the previous conflicts, reduced the Spaniards to about a third, and the Tlascalans to a fifth of the force which had entered the capital. The greater part of the soldiers of Narvaez had been killed. They had formed the rear guard, and had not only borne the brunt of the battle, but had suffered from the effect of their cupidity. Of the cavalry, but twenty-three remained mounted. All the artillery had been lost, and every musket thrown away in the flight. Velasquez de Leon had fallen in the early part of the retreat, bravely defending the rear, and several others among the leaders had also fallen, together with all the prisoners whom they had brought out from the capital. The remains of the army straggled on into the town of Tlacopan, but Cortez would allow of no halt there. At any moment, the exultant Aztecs from the capital might arrive, and, in a battle in the streets, the Spaniards would stand no chance whatever with their foes. He, therefore, hurried the soldiers through, and, when outside, endeavored to form them into some sort of order. It was necessary to give them a few hours of repose, and he led them towards an eminence, crowned by a temple, which commanded the plain. It was held by a party of natives, and the troops, dispirited and exhausted, refused at first to advance against them. But the influence of Cortes, backed by the example of his officers, had its usual effect. The column moved forward against the temple, and the natives, after a few discharges of missiles, 
abandoned the place. It was a large building, affording ample shelter for the Spaniards and their allies. Provisions were found there, and a large supply of fuel intended for the service of the temple. Here, lighting great fires, they dried their clothing, bound up their wounds, and, after partaking of food, threw themselves down to sleep. Fortunate it was for the Spaniards that the Mexicans, contented with the slaughter they had inflicted, the plunder they had captured, and, most of all, with the prisoners whom they had carried off to be sacrificed on their altars, retired to the capital, and allowed the invaders twenty-four hours' breathing time. Had they pressed them hotly and relentlessly from the moment when they emerged from the causeway, they would have annihilated them for at that time the Spaniards were too worn out and dispirited to be capable of any effectual resistance. Food and rest, however, did wonders for them. They were hardy veterans, and with Cortez and the leaders they most trusted with them, they soon came to look at matters in a more cheerful light. They were still stronger than they were when they first marched upon Mexico, why then should they despair of making their way back to Tlaxcala, where they would have rest and friends? They knew there was a long and painful march before them, and probably desperate battles to fight. But in a fair field they felt themselves a match for any number of the enemy, and when, late in the evening, their officers bade them form up and prepare for a night's march, they fell in steadily and willingly and Cortez felt that they could again be relied upon under every emergency. End of chapter 18